This episode of How the West Was Cast is sponsored in part by Outlaw Soaps. Handmade soaps, body washes, lotions, colognes, and more. Whether you're an authentic cowboy or just like watching westerns on the big screen, Outlaw Soaps is the best way to stay clean. Does your soap make you feel like you're on an adventure? Mine does. Never in my life have I smelled so exactly like I feel like I should. Outlaw Soaps offers a wide variety of grooming products to enhance your free and adventurous lifestyle and will have you feeling as fresh and wild as a mountain desert night around the campfire. Have a free spirit? Your soap should too. Live an outlaw lifestyle? So should your lotion. Love campfires and whiskey? Well, smell like it. Howdy, friends. You're listening to How the West Was Cast, a podcast dedicated to the best of the Western movie genre. Ever since I was a kid, uh, I wanted to be like you, Mark. You've been a lawman all your life. Yeah. Yeah, all my life. It's a great life. You risk your skin catching killers, and the juries turn them loose so they can come back and shoot at you again. If you're honest, you're poor your whole life. And in the end, you wind up dying all alone on some dirty street. For what? For nothing. For a tin star. That was Gary Cooper and Lon Chaney Jr. in the 1952 classic High Noon, which is our topic on this episode of How the West Was Cast. Hello. My name is Matthew Chernoff, and I'm a screenwriter and an entertainment journalist in Los Angeles. And I'm Andrew Patrick Nelson, a film historian and the chair of the Department of Film and Media Arts at the University of Utah. Now, as most listeners of this podcast know, High Noon was directed by four-time Oscar winner Fred Zinnemann, and it was written by blacklisted screenwriter Carl Foreman. The film is often referred to as the quintessential Cold War Western, and many describe it as an allegory for the anti-communist witch hunts of the 1940s and 50s and the blacklist they inspired. The question is, should that blacklist reading dominate the discourse surrounding High Noon to the extent that it has? Or could there be other equally relevant readings of the film that have been overlooked by scholars and movie fans and overshadowed by this popular interpretation? To help answer that question, we've invited film historian Austin Fisher to join us on the show today. That's because he recently published a provocative essay about High Noon in the Journal of Cinema and Media Studies. We'll hear a conversation between Austin and Andrew Patrick Nelson in just a minute. But first, I want to let you know that we've got a little surprise in store for you at the very end of this episode, courtesy of today's sponsor, Outlaw Soaps. So don't turn the podcast off too quickly or you just might miss it. And with that said, I think it's time we say hello to Austin Fisher. Austin Fisher is an associate professor of popular culture at Bournemouth University. He is the author of two acclaimed books, Radical Frontiers and the Spaghetti Western, Politics, Violence, and Popular Italian Cinema. 
And more recently, Blood in the Streets, Histories of Violence in Italian Crime Cinema. He's also co-editor of Bloomsbury's Global Exploitation Cinema's book series. The occasion for our conversation today is the recent publication of a new essay he's written for the Journal of Cinema and Media Studies titled, Revisiting the Blacklist Western, a Reception Study of High Noon. Austin Fisher, welcome to How the West Was Cast. Thank you very much. It's a, a privilege to be here. I've been listening to this podcast many times over the, the lockdowns of COVID, and so it's nice to be on this. Well, we've, as we also just talked about uh, before we started recording, this interview has been a long time coming, so I'm really excited that uh, folks are going to be able to read this important essay. So, uh, so as you and I know, and as most of our listeners will know, High Noon is a uh, 1952 Western about a marshal named Will Kane, played by Gary Cooper, who decides to leave his Quaker wife on their wedding day and postpone his retirement in order to defend his town from a returning villain who is set to arrive on the noon train to exact revenge for his incarceration at Kane's hands. As you point out, High Noon holds an esteemed place, let's say, in not only histories of the Western genre, but histories of American cinema more, more generally. And this reputation rests on a particular understanding of the film in the context of post-war Hollywood. So maybe to start, could you just tell us a little bit about what this dominant allegorical reading of High Noon is? Mm, yeah. Um, so if you read any kind of scholarly studies of High Noon, at some point, the blacklist will be mentioned. And this is a generalization, but it's a broadly true one. And High Noon is widely, if not universally, read as an allegory for the blacklist, an allegory for um, the House Un-American Activities Committee and their hearings in Hollywood, specifically in 1951, when Carl Foreman refused to testify. And readings of this film have widely seen it as uh, an allegory for his disgust at the cowardice of contemporary Hollywood. And so Will Cain's disgust at the cowardice of, of the town at the end of the film is supposed to be a, a symbol for how Foreman felt that he had been betrayed and not backed up when a hoodlum came to town in the guise of uh, Senator Joseph McCarthy. A terror-stricken town left him to face four killers single-handed at high noon. With every swing of the pendulum, with every second, a man's life ticked away. Never have so few moments held such excitement. Although it is a scholarly interpretation, as is often the case with writing about the Western, scholarly ideas do have a tendency to make it eventually, some of them, break out into the wider culture. Would, would you say that this allegorical reading is also held more kind of generally by film fans? I think now it is. And I think that's um, anyone who does a bit of research into the film, anyone who reads a book about the film, anyone who is interested in the surrounding history will probably come across this reading. And it's an interesting reading. And I quite, I quite like it myself. It's kind of, it makes it an interesting film and I can see why people are attracted to it. And that reading is there and it, it is a significant reading and it's it's worthwhile as well i'm not i'm certainly not dismissing it my findings were that there are other readings available which have not been covered in, to quite the same extent right so what was it that first suggested to you that this prevailing reading of the film was if not wrong 
then may be uh, incomplete. It's, it's interesting because I this is an example of scholarship where the results that came out of this were not what I sought to find in the first place, which I think is what scholarship should be about, really responding mm. to the evidence rather than preordaining a conclusion. And so I approached this thinking, well, I'm I'm very interested in how Westerns symbolize political tensions of their period, um, which is a, a standard reading in scholarship and in criticism, as, as you well know, because you I do, I do know that well. And I, I have done that myself. In, like My first book was about how Italian Westerns did exactly that. And so my, my initial desire with this article was to investigate that very point in more depth. It's such a widespread allegorical reading that I just thought, well, it'd be interesting to see exactly how that allegorical reading formed and how soon after its release was it was it formed. So I was expecting to find lots of contemporary reviews that discussed it because the when you read books about this film the impression you get is that everyone was aware of it it was all over the newspapers it was being discussed that when high noon was denied an oscar it was directly because of this and it kind of was but whether or not that was in the public domain is a, another issue so i went onto newspaper databases and i just thought it would be interesting to just really mine this and so i spent a whole summer basically going through every review I could find between 1951 and 1956 of this film. And we're talking about hundreds of reviews. So maybe talk a little bit more about that methodology. So you find these 148 reviews. How do you then go about trying to determine what the actual kind of popular discourse about the film was? And I think you looked at, uh, is it 51 to 56 or 58? Yes, uh, 51 to 56. Yeah. It was, um, so it's kind of. So you've, you've got these reviews. You've got to read 148 reviews. What's, what's your, what are you looking for when you go into those? Well, that's, yeah, that's an interesting question because initially I was looking for people who were drawing direct links between the film and the blacklist. Right. And so I, I initially thought, right, let's search for this because it's going to be everywhere. So high noon plus blacklist or something. High noon and blacklist was my first yeah. search term, I think. And of course, I should point out that this kind of research is only possible because of the growth in online newspaper databases. Yeah. Um, and there are methodological flaws in relying on that as well, because I'm relying on transcription and digitization being accurate. And so that I may well have missed things. Yeah. Did you use news newspapers.com or? Yes, primarily, yeah. yeah. Great yeah. resource. Yeah. And so, yeah, I typed in high noon blacklist at first and expected a huge amount of things to come up and very little did. And, right. and that was the kind of the initial alarm bell was well hang on i thought this film was the kind of it, it's the the cause celebre of yeah. cold war westerns mean it being about the cold war not about the wild west so where is where are all these discussions of it i thought i'd done something wrong <laughs> so i then i narrowed my search terms and just searched for high noon reviews right. and there are lots and i found 148 so eventually that's what i did i just searched for high noon Right. And, and narrowed it down. So if there were replications, I cut those out and I just collated all of them and then spent a summer reading them and kind of doing a, a corpus of key terms, key arguments, main approaches to the film. So just so that, that initial finding, the, the lack of a discussion of high noon at the time in the context of blacklist sort of confirmed what you, you had observed in some of the scholarship. That there would be references to how the film was received, but not a lot of specific reference to newspaper articles at the time, really outside of uh, Hollywood trade journals, right? 
So kind of a dearth of primary evidence. So yeah, the the controversy was certainly there in the trade press. But my article that we're discussing doesn't look at the trade press quite deliberately because others have done that before. Yeah. And it is there in the trade press and the industry did know about the meaning. But whether that can then translates into the popular press right. is another matter altogether. And I found that it did not in any meaningful way. Right. So, so there is, uh, along with this myth of High Noon being this allegory, sort of the idea that the film is maybe not even a Western, that it's a social drama in Western disguise. And there's also this idea that High Noon at the time was not received as, uh, as a great Western or, or wasn't even really thought of in terms of it being a Western. But you discovered that this was also not entirely accurate. Yeah, in fact, you could hardly be further from the truth. Was what I was a, the kind of fascinating discovery I made was when we break down this scholarly orthodoxy about High Noon being a blacklist western. One of the first things you hear from scholarly writing about the film is that it was ostracised from the western. That it was despised, it was critically denigrated, that it was seen to be, as you say, not a Western, but a, a social drama dressed up in Western clothes was the constant refrain you you read from Andre Bazin, Robert Warshow, Andrew Saris, kind of founding luminaries of film studies and of Western genre studies. And that wasn't the case at all. And the popular press from, from the week of release in particular was overwhelmingly positive about this film. It was an instant classic. Um, it was seen to be more than just a great Western. It was seen to be one of the great Westerns. One of the most repetitive phrases I came across was comparing it to Stagecoach yeah. and Red River. You know, I was I was really struck by by that, just the, the number of reviewers putting it in the same league with Stagecoach, which is actually interesting because it tells us something about Stagecoach's reputation as a Western yeah. by 1952. Um, but also, I mean, there, there's one, you know, there's, there's one review who basically says, you know, to this point, there was only one Western I truly cherished and that was stagecoach. And now there's a second. I mean, what do you, what do you make of, of that? Just the, the stagecoach is this kind of touchstone for the, the Western at that time. And then that being immediately what critics go to to say, Oh, this is a great film. That is very interesting, isn't it? Because it stagecoach is one of those films that is celebrated in retrospect when we draw genre canons and when we seek to demarcate periods of the Western's development. And it's often seen to be, again, this is a scholarly tendency. It's, it's stagecoach is often discussed as the film that resurrected the Western and which totally ignores the fact that the Western was never dead in the first place. Yeah. And indeed the 1930s was probably its most productive decade. Yes. It's just the wrong ki kind of Western because it was popular Westerns. It was singing cowboy Westerns. It wasn't yeah. the serious Western as, as uh, critical establishments like to frame it. And so I th think that kind of shows that that kind of discourse was already alive in the early fifties. And, and this, this eagerness to demarcate periods of the genre in convenient uh, landmarks, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, one, one thing that I've written about a few places is that Stagecoach is, is actually a very atypical Western for 1939. We, we hold 39 as being this really remarkable year when we get this real explosion of uh, a Western. So different from the types of Westerns that were really popular in the 30s, the B Westerns, the singing cowboy pictures, but you know, these A Westerns. So you got, you know, Jesse James, Union Pacific, and Stagecoach is certainly in there, but it's, you know, its story of the imperiled stagecoach is not 
a typical Western story in the way that, the, you know, the charismatic outlaw or the building of the railroad or the, you know, the, the town taming lawman or something like that. So it's, it's interesting to see that by 1952, I mean, one implication would be that this kind of cannon building activity has already taken place that retrospectively people have said, oh, stagecoach is a great, a great Western. And that becomes a touchstone for us to look back on and, and say, well, there's some kind of connection then, some kind of similarity to, uh, between High Noon and that film. And in some ways, there is a similarity in that, as you say, both of them are quite atypical. Yes. And, and they're actually very unusual Westerns and for various reasons. And, and a, one of the standout quotations that I found was that I, I think it's the same one that you're referring to. I've just got it in front of me now. I, this reviewer said, I cherish two Westerns, Stagecoach and High Noon. These were the peak of effort within a single field. They achieved a shining perfection that stamped them on memory as though with a hot iron. They never strayed from their milieu. They kept within a rigid code of storytelling. It's as if these are the definitive Westerns. These, right. are, these are not just great Westerns. These are the Westerns that forevermore will be held up as the most typical and most wonderfully, like almost the platonic form of the Western. Right. And nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah, really. it's, it's, they're incredibly atypical. Although it's interesting because I obviously done a lot of work on Westerns from the sixties onward and especially in the sixties and into the seventies, you'll see the advertising for films begins to reference even, even kind of obscure Westerns like bite the bullet, you know, which is a Gene Hackman film about horse, with Candace Birkin about horse racing. You know, we'll say that it is a great Western in the tradition of stagecoach, high noon. They, they come up time and time again. But, but as you said, these are entirely atypical Westerns, which is perhaps what makes them so appealing to scholars and critics. Uh, the searchers often gets mentioned in this way that these are Westerns, perhaps for people who don't like Westerns. Yeah, exactly what Andrew Saris said. He said that Zinnemann was a, an anti-filmmaker for anti-film goers, and he made an anti-Western. Right. There was once upon a, a time that to be a Republican in this area of the country felt a little bit, by, a bit like being Gary Cooper in High Noon, out, <laughs> outnumbered in a big way. The first movie I ever saw more than once was High Noon. And I was still living in Hope, Arkansas when it came out. I was six years old. You could go to the movies for a dime, and I'd get 20 cents. So I could buy, I think you could get a Coke and a candy bar or something for a nickel each thing. And I bet I've seen it 25 or 30 times. The only other movie like that in my life that I just see over and over and over again and never get tired of is Casablanca. That's a good. That's a good segue to another topic about High Noon. So you've kind of dispelled the idea that there was widespread popular discourse about High Noon as being about the blacklist. Certainly, the case in Hollywood that conversation is happening, but not in the wider popular culture. I mean, you, you even you know, sort of point out that oftentimes there would be reviews of High Noon appearing on the exact same page as articles about the House on American Activities Committee's investigations with no sort of crossover whatsoever between the two of them. So we've, we've kind of got that there. And then the idea that it wasn't received, at least popularly, as Western, quite the opposite. It was seen as a 
a great Western. Uh, then there's the question of, of authorship. And that allegorical reading foregrounds Carl Foreman as a kind of authorial figure. Um, now this has sort of been problematized more recently, uh, certainly in Glenn Frankel's book, High Noon. He spends a lot of time talking about the different claims that different participants in the film might have to some kind of authorship. What's, I guess, what's the, the controversy around the film's authorship? And, and what did your review of all these contemporary reviews tell you about this subject? Yeah, so this was another kind of unexpected but fascinating finding of, of this archive was that the other big controversy, as you say, around High Noon, other, if you take away the blacklist reading, though related to it, is who is the kind of the primary agent of, of making this film, who should be credited as the genius behind the film. And again, scholarship tends to divide into two camps, Fred Zinnemann or Carl Foreman. And often this is related to whether or not a, re a writer is buying into blacklist readings or not. If, if, we're, if we're in the Carl Foreman camp, then we're saying, yes, this is a blacklist film. If we're in the Fred Zinnemann camp, then we're arguing that, no, this was, this was not. This was more of a kind of social problem film. This was a, a film about issues. And Zinnemann himself said it wasn't a blacklist film, and he, he rejected that reading. And so, again, I was going in expecting to find this dichotomy being enacted in the popular press. And again, I was disabused of that notion instantly because Stanley Kramer is the one who is credited as the creative genius behind this film time and time and time the again. The producer. Yeah. And Foreman is almost invisible. I mean, he's kind of mentioned every now and then. He's sort of, he's listed sometimes, not always, as, as a part of the team that made a great film, but it's Kramer. Kramer is the, the guy who made this great film. He's it's it's Kramer who can be trusted to lift something above the norm of the Western. He's the one who can insert meaning into a film. Not Zinnemann, not Foreman. It's it's Kramer, overwhelmingly. Is that kind of typical um, for reviews of the time to emphasize a figure like a Stanley Kramer? Is it atypical? I think from what I found, it's atypical in that they wouldn't normally do that for a producer. But Kramer was an atypical producer. Kramer was very high profile and renowned as a social problem film producer. And so it's, I think when you, when you're looking at reviews of Stanley Kramer films, it's normal for them to be seen as Stanley Kramer films. Right. So just, yeah, just to contextualize that, you know, he, his films include like the defiant ones, guess who's coming to dinner, inherit the wind, judgment at Nuremberg, the cane mutiny, ship of fuel fool. So he did have this reputation as a, as sort of, I guess, liberal, producer who would take on the types of films that other producers might shy away from because they were concerned about their controversial nature, let's say. Yeah, which makes it all the more interesting that he actually then fired Foreman and stripped him of his associate <laughs> producer credit because of the blacklist controversy, which did happen. So again, the blacklist reading is there. It's in the background and it, it is something worth considering. It, right. my, my kind of key argument is that perhaps it shouldn't dominate discourse to the extent it has. That's, right. that's really all it is. Well, something that I think sometimes gets missed or, or maybe conflated when we're talking about the blacklist's inquiries, investigations into Hollywood, is that there, there are really two rounds of questioning. There's, there's one in 1947, and then there's a later one in 1951. And you sort of point out that there were some important differences between these two, especially in terms of how they were, let's say, received by the public. Yes. So, when we tend to think of the HUAC investigation into Hollywood, we tend to think of the 1947 hearings, which were the 
very high profile, almost pantomime like performances in front of cameras and kind of high profile ejections from the witness table and shouting matches. And this was the, it was the drama of hunting communists and, and weeding communists out of Hollywood. When Hurak returned to Hollywood in 1951, it was much more low profile and most of the hearings didn't have cameras present in the room. Variety complained that the hearings were dull and droning and all about procedure and nothing much was going on. And, and right. that was actually the context in which Carl Foreman was subpoenaed. There were cameras present on the day he was there. That's an important thing to say. So it's not entirely yeah. invisible, but generally those hearings were not very high profile and they weren't, right. they were nothing like the 1947 hearings. I mean, I always found it interesting that, you know, as you say, those 47 hearings were so high profile, not only in terms of the people who, you know, took the witness stand, Dalton Trumbo is probably the most famous now, but, you know, there are others, Edward Dimitrik, the, the, the so-called Hollywood 10, but then you, you've also got Bogart and McCall and Danny Kaye and others marching on Washington, and you have a very neat binary where you have people like Disney taking the stand, you have, you know, Adolf Menjou talking about communists and they should go to Texas because of what Texans would do to them. It's, it's, it made for very good theater, but it, it, it's those, the later ones in some ways are, seem to be somewhat more consequential in, in some ways, um, in terms of naming names and, and so on. And that's kind of one of the conclusions I began to draw by this is that this tells us something about high noon, these findings clearly, because that's what this article is about. But I think it also tells us something about the, the House on American Activities Committee's hearings in 1951. I found front page after front page after front page where high noon was prominent in the days or the weeks news stories because it was denied the best picture Oscar. And we are told by many scholarly accounts that that was directly because of the blacklist reading of the film. And indeed, there is evidence to suggest that it was. But we're told that that was the kind of defining controversy around the film, that that was high profile, that everyone knew about it. And so when I found that on front pages of newspapers nationwide, all over the country for weeks on end, which is very rare for a film to be on the front page of, of newspapers, on the same page as many, many stories about the House Un-American Activities Committee, two things were very notable is that not a single one of those front pages drew any connection between the film and the HUAC. But also none of those stories about the HUAC were about Hollywood. Right. They were all about other intrusions of the hearings into civil society, into education, into the media, but not about Hollywood. No one, none of these stories even kind of seemed aware that they were back in Hollywood. So the, the notion that this was a, a widespread, very high profile hearing with a high profile screenwriter of a high profile Western famously sticking one back to McCarthy with his screenplay. Yeah. While a very common subject of whispers in the film industry and the trade press right. was not something that was foremost in the public consciousness by the evidence that I have uncovered. I can't pretend to know what everyone was thinking and nor would I claim to be, but this evidence does not point to that. Calling the House Un-American Activities Committee to order, Chairman J. Parnell Thomas of New Jersey opens an inquiry into possible communist penetration of the Hollywood film industry. The committee is seeking to determine if Red Party members have reached the screen with subversive propaganda. Mr. Thomas takes an impartial stand in his opening talk. I want to emphasize at the outset of these hearings that the fact that the Committee on Un-American Activities is investigating alleged communist influence and infiltration in the moving picture industry must not be considered 
or interpreted as an attack on the industry itself, nor should our investigation be interpreted as an attack on the majority of persons associated with this great industry. I have every confidence that the vast majority of movie workers are patriotic and loyal Americans. You know, one thing that I actually really appreciated in this, this essay is you point out that the idea of the film's narrative as an allegory for Foreman's plight doesn't really work yeah. in any particular way. Yes. Yeah, so it, this kind of occurred to me as I was writing it in a way, because a scholarly article, you have to introduce the key ideas and you have to bring someone on board because it's not necessarily universally known that this is a blacklist allegory. And so I had to explain the allegory. And so I, I wanted to do that quickly and I wanted to do it efficiently. And so when the hoodlum comes to town and Gary Cooper is trying to gather his um, his posse and round people up to help him to save the town's civilized values, it's because he's coming specifically to target Will Kane. Yeah. He's he's coming for revenge on Will Kane. It's because he he locked him up years ago. Yeah. But then I tried to transpose that from the plot of High Noon to the Huac investigation and it just didn't add up because Huac did not come after Carl Foreman. They weren't here to get Carl Foreman. They they were here to get communists. Yeah. And he was one of the people they wanted to question and he refused to testify and therefore he got blacklisted. And yeah. And so that doesn't quite work. Even if the allegory was foremost, it doesn't quite add up. And then also there's this notion that Foreman was framing the Hollywood establishment as cowardly, that when Will Cain discards his tin star, it's because he's disgusted with the unwillingness of a community to stand up to the, the values it has professed to hold dear. Right. When, when the time comes, when tyranny comes, who will stand up to this, this tyranny? Um, and that also doesn't quite work because what could Hollywood have done? Right. Like, yeah. They, they were in no position to resist Huac. Now, maybe they were cowardly. Maybe they did abandon him to his fate. And I think, you know, you could argue that they did, but I'm not entirely sure what they could have done to stop it, really. And so right. in various ways, it's a bit of a clumsy allegory, which isn't to say it wasn't intended because it could just be a clumsy allegory that was intended and has been read by many people. And that's, that's one reading. Well, it's certainly it's certainly been a, a a powerful allegory. It's almost, I guess, a myth. It's sort of the, the myth of High Noon in, in some ways, and that uh, that gets to something that I've been thinking a fair amount about recently. So, you know, it's the job of film historians to you know try to look closely at, at history and, and try to uncover maybe not the truth, but something approaching it. You know, persuasive arguments about what actually happened, but what. It seems to me, and your article seemed to provide just more evidence for this line of thinking for me, is that to a significant extent, probably greater degree than we've ever heretofore acknowledged, our understanding of Hollywood history has actually been shaped by the stories that Hollywood told about itself at the time. You know, whether through the trade press, which was often working in collaboration with the studios. I'm just – I'm almost concerned by the degree to which the myths that Hollywood has created about itself have influenced decades of what was supposedly serious academic histories, which then become popular histories. 
Am I right to worry about that? Is that an instance of this? I think so. And I think the key finding that I kind of came to at the end of this article was that if we approach film history, indeed any history, if we approach history with an assumption that a received narrative or reading of a situation is universally true, then we are instantly disabling our own reading of, of that moment. And the reason I came to that conclusion was because that was exactly what I was doing when I started researching this article, and then swiftly had to disabuse myself of the notion I had when I approached it. So I think the specificities of the moment have to be taken into account much more in, in film history, because I think historians more broadly do this all the time. Yeah, they look at they look at the context. They look at the specific factors that fed into a particular event or phenomenon, and then think about okay, why did this happen? What came out of it? What were the results? Who perceived it in this way? Um, who perceived it in other ways as well? Whereas in film history, we tend to buy into either auteur theory or genre theory, mm. which tend to steer us down preordained conclusions around individual genius or around the adherence or subversion of industry norms. Right. Well, I've, as, as you know, and as our listeners will know, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of starting with the films first, actually looking at the films, looking at the films people were actually watching, and then trying to, to the best of our ability to understand what the ordinary people were thinking. You know, c- certainly when it comes to primary evidence, it's been the trade press that most historians have, have drawn upon as opposed to newspapers. If they've looked at newspapers, it's been the big ones, New York Times, um, LA Times. Those are really, really the main ones. But it, it kind of leads me to question the degree to which we should be relying on the Hollywood Reporter and Daily Variety when, when there's, especially now, so many newspaper articles that we can have access to easily to, to try to get a better sense of what's going on at the time. Yeah, and I think that points to the important factor that perhaps people overlook, which is how many people actually read the trade press. <laughs> right. Which sounds like a, I'm being facetious, but I think actually it's, it's an important point because the only reason I've ever read Variety is because I've been researching an article for a scholarly publication. Right. I don't work in the film industry, but then neither do the vast majority of Americans. And so why would they read the trade press? They're more likely to encounter critical perspectives on a film through the local newspaper, which is not to say, and I keep having to insert this caveat, which is not to say that they will believe what they read. Of course. A- absolutely not. But it is an insight into the interpretive strategies that they are being offered by the surrounding discourse. Whether or not they accept it is a completely different matter. I think well, one of my, I wrote down this line from your essay uh, that I really appreciate associations between a film and contemporary events or attitudes are problematic if the details of that relationship are assumed rather than interrogated. What is it about High Noon as a film, as a Western, that has not prompted people to do the type of questioning that you've been doing? I mean, we we have a very good book about High Noon now, Glenn Frankel's book that I mentioned earlier, which goes some way to dispelling a lot of these myths. But even he doesn't go to the types of places that you go and kind of re- reaffirms in some ways many of the myths of High Noon is this great, important film in the context of the Cold War. What is it about High Noon that has this kind of reach or appeal uh, for a certain type of critic or historian? I think it's that it is all things to all people because it it is a Western, of course. 
if you define a Western as setting, costume, character, type, theme, perhaps, then it is a Western. But it is also an art film, if, if you want it to be, because it's in real time, almost. Not quite, but it's almost in real time. It, it feels like it's in real time. And the preponderance of clocks and the quite contemplative cinematography at times. Sure. It's also a social problem film because it's a Stanley Kramer film, and that's what everyone picked up on. And so it comments on issues of society and prejudice, and it, it comments on so many timeless themes as well. But it's also a film of its time, so it's a film that belongs within the Blacklist era and can be read as that. And it's a Gary Cooper film, which is something we haven't really mentioned. <laughs> because when, when I said that yeah. Stanley Kramer was mentioned more in reviews than Carl Foreman was or Fred Zinnemann was – Gary Cooper was mentioned more than anyone else for an obvious reason, which is the star system. And I'm, I'm, I'm speculating, but I think this probably does reflect the fact that most people, when they went to see this film, were going to see the latest Gary Cooper Western. Of course. I like Westerns because the good ones are real. You feel real when you're making them, and uh, well, you don't feel actorish. The Western picture tells stories of the pioneer period. Uh, the pioneers uh, braved the elements, and we are brought close to the pioneer people by seeing the Western picture, and uh, we realize that our country was and is full of people who believe in America. I think the film is all of those things and those things, all of those facets of it don't have to be mutually exclusive. You know, one thing that I've pointed out is that, you know, at the same time as this film has been upheld as this great liberal allegory, a publication like the National Review, the conservative American magazine can also say that this is one of the greatest conservative movies of all time because of Will Cain's refusal to walk away I mean, you'll know that also in, in the context of the Korean War, some people at the time supposedly saw this as an affirmation of America's mission in Korea. So it, it can be all of those different things, and it, it need not be only one of those things. In fact, a fuller appreciation of the film is is probably what this film actually needs and deserves to understand why it's had such appeal. What you said, though, does kind of take me back to how this this can be just a, a useful way to make particular arguments about Hollywood. So it becomes less about the film itself. The film is a Western. The film is a kind of what if Western about, well, you know, what if the lawman didn't leave town at the end? What if Wyatt Earp decided, you know, I'm not going to ride off. I'm going to stay and we'll, we'll see what happens. Doesn't end particularly well for him. Kind of reaffirms the decisions of all of those Western heroes to leave town. I mean, it, it certainly is a Western and I don't think that's been discussed to the degree that it should be. So I, I think it deserves this fuller treatment. The fact that it has so many readings and the fact that it has so many fans from every political hue is why it's interesting. And that's and that's why we should investigate all of these available readings. And there's another available reading, of course, which, which some scholars have adopted, which is a feminist reading. Because if you ask someone to summarize High Noon, they're probably going to say he faces the bad guys alone at the end. And that's not true. Because, spoiler alert, his Quaker <laughs> wife, Amy Kane, actually saves his life and wins the battle yeah. for him. And so it's it's not actually a, a lone masculine quest at all. It's about pacifism and the, the necessity for violence as a last resort, as 
so many Westerns are. And that's why it's so interesting, because it's very ambiguous, actually. Well, certainly in, in the quotations that we have from Howard Hawks, that was something he found especially offensive, this idea that the hero was going to mope around town for 80 minutes and then his Quaker wife yes. had to save and, him. And I think the Howard Hawks hatred of this film is, is another thing that's often pointed to as, oh, well – if if Howard Hawks hated it and made Rio Bravo as a riposte, then it was it's clear that everyone knew that this was a blacklist film, which isn't quite true because that that's not really why he made Rio Bravo. Well, exactly, and he's responding to the cowardly sheriff. Although you know something that I've pointed out that if Rio Bravo is kind of a response to the cowardly depiction of the town, you know, Rio Bravo isn't much of a response because the town is almost in terms of the town's people are basically non-existent. In Rio Bravo, they're just, they are literally on the periphery and in the background. And it's just this world of archetypal heroic males with one, you know, incredibly charismatic female <laughs> thrown into the mix. Yeah. And that, that kind of brings also John Wayne into the mix, of course. Right. Because another piece of evidence for High Noon's widespread reading as a blacklist allegory is the fact that John Wayne in a very high profile way said it was the most un-American thing he'd ever seen in his whole goddamn life. Right. Which of course does point to the fact that John Wayne identified liberal politics in the film and objected to those politics, but he said that in the 1970s. And that's often overlooked. Correct. He along with scholars and along with critics developed this reading over time. I read an interview that, that, that you gave, John, in which you said you objected to High Noon, to the film itself. You said it was un-American. Um, I saw that film, and I guess a lot of people here in this audience would have seen that film, and, and I, for the life of me, can't see what's un-American about it. Well, a whole city of people that have come across the plains and suffered all kinds of hardships are suddenly afraid to help out a sheriff because three men are coming into town that are tough. Now he goes to them and pleads them, and he goes into the church, and for some reason the women are all sitting on one side of the church and the men are sitting all on the other side of the church, and he pleads his case. And the men say, no, 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 and the women get up and say, you're yellow, you're cowards. I don't, I don't think that ever happens in the United States. Then at the end of the picture... He took the, the United States Marshal badge, threw it down, stepped on it, and walked off. I think those things are just a little bit un-American. Well, I mean, Wayne famously accepted Gary Cooper's Best <laughs> Actor Oscar. And when he gets up on the stage, he says that he's, you know, he's going to go back to his manager and three-name writers and ask them why he didn't get High New. Ladies and gentlemen... I'm glad to see that they're giving this to a man who is not only most deserving, but has conducted himself throughout his years in our business in a manner that we can all be proud of him. Coop and I have been friends hunting and fishing for more years than I like to remember. He's one of the nicest fellows I know. I don't know anybody any nicer. And our kinship goes further than that friendship because we both fell off our horses into pictures together. Now that I'm through being such a good sport, spouted all this good sportsmanship, I'm going to go back and find my business manager, an agent, producer, and three-name writer, and find out why I didn't get High Noon instead of Cooper. Yeah, and that's that's what he says. I mean, he he says that publicly. So, you know, and I, I don't say this is a, a criticism of Wayne. She says that his his ideas about the film changed. 
just as many other people's ideas about the film changed as this myth of the film as this, you know, I guess in his view, un-American or at least liberal, politically liberal film took hold, not only in Hollywood and, and then in academia and then to a degree in the larger popular culture. And it's worth noting that Carl Foreman's own explanations for this film's meaning being a blacklist allegory also come from the 1970s. Correct. The, the ones we have on record. Now, I'm sure he said it to people in the 50s too, but not on record. So it's debatable whether it really was. You know, and that, that's actually another thing I think about a lot. You know, m- many of these great screenwriters, directors, actors of Hollywood's golden age were, of course, around into the 70s. Um, they were, in many cases, willing to go on at great length about their craft you know, when visited by people like Peter Bogdanovich, you know, kowtowing at the the feet of their idols. But I, I often think that by, by that point, those filmmakers, they have, you know, consciously or not, by osmosis, I suppose, just kind of absorbed decades worth of critical ideas about these films. And I think that begins to shape their own retrospective discussions about what it exactly is that they were doing. Uh, Cirque probably is the most obvious case when he starts talking about the symbolism of his films. But I, I think this happens with Ford. I think it happens with Hawks. I think it happens with all of these guys. Yeah. And I think that kind of points to the broader significance of, of this film, but also of blacklist readings of films more generally, which is that it's a, it's a very perilous way to approach these films if we think that audiences or societies acted as one right in any way i mean that's a perilous thing to do for any historian at any point absolutely and so if we think of the red scare and and the panic around communism and witch hunts if we think that that characterized the whole of american society that's instantly a, a historical dead end of course it is and it sounds too obvious to say that it sounds ridiculous to even say it but yet somehow we we tend to do it when we think about audiences we do which is an odd thing to do as though this single film tells us everything we need to know about the zeitgeist, uh, which of course, mm. you know, our, our own everyday experience is a film going disconfirm. The, the person who you agree with 90% of the time, you can go and see a film with them and you can come out and it can be as if you and your friends saw completely <laughs> different films. Yeah. And I think this, this kind of links back to what we're saying about the, the 1970s readings of High Noon, which is that like Jeff Smith has said this in his book about about the blacklist, that these readings didn't emerge fully formed in the 50s. When we look back at Johnny Guitar or at, um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers or, or High Noon or any of these films that are now seen to be communist allegories, they were not necessarily seen as communist allegories at the time or allegories of the blacklist or allegories of the Cold War. But those readings developed over time as film studies became an academic discipline and as film criticism became more respected and as film as a medium became more respected as a, an artistic commentary on society. Retrospective readings became attached. And, and especially, as you as you were alluding to earlier, as blacklisted writers began to be accepted back into the Hollywood fold and Hollywood began to want to atone for its sins – their stories began to emerge, and therefore these meanings began to emerge. And so they are retrospectively attached. Yeah. And maybe this is a, a good discussion point for us to end on, is in spite of all that, there there is this clear desire to – 
to want to cling to conventional but incorrect ideas. So, you know, I think about Trumbo, who gives a very famous speech uh, in the 70s about the blacklist, where he states very clearly, you know, there were no heroes, villains, there were only victims. And yet, you know, decades later, they make a film about his life where he's very clearly the hero. And I've, I've kind of, in a, in a much more modest sense, experienced this in my own writing where I've, I've written a lot about the Western, where in certain ways I've pointed out that the stories we've told ourselves about Westerns aren't true and that if you went back and watched the films closely, if you looked at the films that were, were actually popular, you would kind of find a, you know, a counter narrative to the prevailing notions of the Western is about great men and a limited number of films that were socially relevant in some sense. So I, I've done that and I've noticed, again, this propensity to want to believe, I guess, the myths that critics and historians or just ordinary folks now tell ourselves about film history, which doesn't, I got to say, make me all that optimistic for, <laughs> for how influential your article might be. Um, <laughs> I found that oftentimes in more recent writing about the Western, somebody will, so in my case, reiterate the accepted revisionist view of the Western and then there'll be a footnote. And then it'll say something to the effect of Andrew Nelson disagrees with this at great length. And that's kind of it. So I, I appreciated you actually referencing me not in a footnote in this <laughs> essay. What, what, do you, what do you think about this? About you know, articles like yours come along, you know, they, they well, let's say they don't invalidate other readings, but they certainly should give us pause to reflect upon those readings. Are you optimistic about the influence that the impact that this uh, essay might have, or are you, you kind of pessimistic like me? I'm more optimistic because it has appeared in the Journal for Cinema and Media Studies, mm. which is which is a very high-profile, respected, field-leading journal. Sure. And therefore, within the field, people will hopefully take notice of it. I'm also optimistic because it has been published open access, right? which is a new initiative by that journal to put selected articles on, on their website so that anyone can read them, which is obviously the problem with journals, is that no one reads them beyond scholarly societies. And we'll, we'll include a link to the essay in the show notes. And I should point out that my sense is that the journal is, is carefully selecting the open access entries because they are actually not only readable, <laughs> they completely understandable. So, you know, Austin's, Austin's essay is written in, in lucid prose that will be of interest and also of, uh, be understandable to any reader, certainly any reader of this podcast. Well, that's very nice to hear. And on that optimistic note, Austin Fisher, thank you for joining us on How the West Was Cast. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. By the time this sun hits high noon, only one of these men will be alive. Lee Majors is Will Kane, an ex-lawman facing the fight of his life with Pernell Roberts, a corrupt marshal who never brings anyone back alive. Is this one anybody? David Carradine's caught in the crossfire, along with Will's wife. Time is running out for the hero, the hunter. And the town locked in the grip of terror. An all-new motion picture, Saturday, November 15th at 9, 8 Central and Mountain. High Noon, Part 2. That was film historian Austin Fisher in conversation about his new essay, Revisiting the Blacklist Western, a reception study of High Noon. The essay is essential reading 
for any fan of Western movies, and you can find a link to it in the show notes. Now, one thing Austin and I didn't discuss about High Noon is the movie's famous song, The Ballad of High Noon, which is more commonly known as Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling. The song is sung in the movie by Tex Ritter and was also covered at the time by Frankie Lane. Great as those versions are, for my money, you can't top a more recent version by the outlaw songstress, mistress of the murder ballad, and good friend of the podcast, Sarah Vista. Take it away, Sarah. Do not forsake me, oh my darling, on this up our High Noon episode, but be sure to listen all the way to the very end of this show for a surprise treat from the makers of Outlaw Soaps. And before we let you go, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Western Podcast. Tell us your thoughts on High Noon, or suggest another film that you'd like us to cover on a future episode. Until next time, I'm Matthew Chernoff. And I'm Andrew Patrick Nelson. And you've been listening to how the West was cast. Well, that was our show. We thank you kindly for listening and hope you'll come back again real soon. Till then, keep your saddle oiled and your guns greased. We'll be seeing you. (laughs) 
So you've heard me mention Outlaw Soap on the show several times already. And right now, we want to welcome Danielle and Russ Vincent, the founders of Outlaw Soap, to join us on the podcast and to talk about some of their fantastic Western-themed products. So Danielle and Russ, welcome to How the West Was Cast. Thank you so much for having us. It's a joy. We're big Western fans. So this is cool. Howdy, everyone. <laughs> so before we discuss Outlaw Soap, we want to hear about your interest in Western movies, of course. So the episode that you're on right now was devoted to the 1952 Gary Cooper classic, High Noon. Is that a film either of you have seen before? Yeah. 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 Just last night, even. Oh, you just watched it. Oh, that's great. What were your thoughts about it? Well, I thought it was really interesting. I immediately loved the um, bar owner and the shop owner. I can't remember. Ramirez. Mrs. Ramirez. Her character, yeah, Mrs. Ramirez. Her character was immediately my favorite and continued to be my favorite through the whole thing. Like the rest of the characters, I was like, man, who has integrity in this town except for one person? It's her. Like, <laughs> yeah. I kind of identified with uh, Gary Cooper because he just looked concerned and worried all the time. <laughs> yeah, that's a you. <laughs> he definitely excels at that. He looks so gravely concerned at every single moment. You wonder what it was he ever a loose kind of guy or he seems like he is on edge the entire movie. Well, and at, at that point in, you know, the actor Gary Cooper's life, he was in a lot of pain every day. Oh, yeah. Back pain. Yeah, so there are photos of him, you know, on the set laying on his back with his legs up, but it works in the film's favor. So Danielle, a couple of weeks ago, you mentioned to me that Once Upon a Time in the West is a movie that you watch frequently. So what is it about that film that really appeals to you? I mean, again, the strong female heroine, like she is going to make it work. She's going to a new place with a new life that she thinks is going to be a certain way. She shows up. It's not that way at all. And she decides to be an entrepreneur. And it's like, really? Okay. That is what I want. Like when I'm having my worst day ever, I think back to that. And I'm like, this is not the worst day ever. Like whatever I'm dealing with today with my like, oh no, my coffee's too hot. And oh no, where am I going to get this, you know, special product that people really want or my labels are running late. So what? That is not at all what she was dealing with. She was dealing with murderers who were trying to scare her off of her land in a railroad development. Like she was running land development and entrepreneurship in the Wild West as somebody who came from a shady past. Nothing I deal with can ever be that hard. <laughs> You're right. She is just so great in that role, too, because everybody else is sort of larger than life in a way. They're iconic characters. But she feels more grounded than almost any of them. She's not going for that kind of cartoony, purely stylized performance. She she adds some some reality to that film that I think. Yeah, really she works. just shows up and gets the job done. Yeah, and like people are always trying to aggress on her as they did in the Wild West. And even like one of the one of the good guys though was like, "Hey, sometimes people are gonna pat your ass. Like, just let him do it." And she was like, "Yeah, nah." And <laughs> And she just kind of walked off. Well, we get we get that same reaction in High Noon, where somebody exactly. um, touches touches her on the shoulder, and he's and she says, "I don't want anybody to touch me unless I let you do that." Yep. So, yeah. And yeah. I don't want you to. And then she hits him. Yeah, it's great. Like, great, great. Yeah, it was amazing, and it was an amazing. Like she 
was especially that moment when she's on the train going away and his wife actually gets off the train with the realization that, oh, this was a stupid idea to leave. And Mrs. Ramirez just is like, yeah, no, this is what leaving a town looks like, you know, like she was a person of conviction. And I think that was really what the whole movie was about was, are you a person of conviction or not? And unfortunately, most of the people in that film were not. So Russ, what about you? Um, Danielle told me that you've seen a lot of Westerns, that you keep watching all different kinds while she keeps revisiting some of her favorites. Uh, what are some of your favorite titles? Well, I was I was raised on Westerns. I mean, my I, I have distinct memories of being a little kid watching Westerns with my dad. He loved old Clint Eastwood and John Wayne movies, especially. And so I was literally raised in front of the TV watching those kind of movies. And I would even uh, sit behind my beanbag chair and pretend I had a gun and was shooting at the bad guys with my uh, my pretend gun and uh, my red uh, rider. Yeah, my little red <laughs> rider. <laughs> you know, and I grew up in, in uh, Cheyenne, Wyoming, and uh, in uh, Montana and Wyoming and uh, Utah and places like that. So, you know, our family was always kind of surrounded by the old west feeling, and and uh, just my dad loved old westerns. We I had a horse called Geronimo when I was a little kid. So wow. So <laughs> I had had the, had the the proper upbringing to be. Uh, one of the founders of Outlaw Soap. And uh, I think one of my favorites and is uh, just The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. I just love that one. And it was really funny because I had forgotten that Lee Van Cleef was in uh, High Noon. Right. He didn't say much of anything, but he was definitely in there. And it was neat yeah. to see him so young. She even said that... That uh, guy has perfect eyebrows. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I don't know if you noticed. <laughs> I didn't. Said, I said, oh, that guy has perfect eyebrows. And Russ said, which one? And I said... The one with perfect eyebrows. <laughs> yeah, we don't really notice that so often. I don't anyway. Yeah, you know, I've I've seen that movie many times. Never thought yeah, of the eyebrows. No. Lee Van Cleef's my one of my favorite bad guys of all time. Uh, one of the other one of my favorite movies was uh, True Grit. For some reason, that's a ter- terrible movie in a lot of ways, but in some ways, it's just. For some reason, True Grit, John Wayne, that's one of my favorites. The original, not the re. Yeah, yeah. The original. I love the remake, though. The remake was good, too. Yeah. So tell us about Outlaw Soaps. Why did you decide to launch the company, and how did you end up choosing the Western theme for it? Well, we had just gotten married, and we were on our little honeymoon road trip, and uh, we were in Paso Robles, California, uh, in kind of that area, the wine country up there, and we stopped at some little cute country store on the side of the road, and uh, we were just perusing all the, you know, cool handmade stuff there, the honeys and the soaps and all that. And Danielle picked up a bar of goat milk soap and she loved the smell of it, you know, and it was like $10 or something like that. You know, the typical high price of handmade country stuff. And uh, she took that home and uh, was in her bathroom just reminding her of that wonderful trip that we had, that wonderful honeymoon that we had. And th- I think that's where the idea hatched. Uh, I think that's what was the catalyst for for Danielle, especially thinking, oh, my God, I want to recreate all these road trips that I've been on to the desert, and mountains and places like this. And I'm an easygoing guy most of the time. So when she said, hey, let's make some soap, I was like, all right, whatever. <laughs> we taught ourselves how to from YouTube. Like we had never done anything like that before. We had never made any kind of caustic substance. I mean, like soap making is probably one of the most dangerous legal activities you can do in your living room. When when I'm dressed up to make soap, not that I do it anymore, but when I used to, I look like the guys from Breaking Bad. 
I, I go outside to to clean some some of the dishes and stuff that I use to make it, and people were giving me the eye all the time because <laughs> what's this guy doing? Is he making meth or what's going on? Yeah. So if this the soap thing doesn't work out for you, there's always a backup plan. <laughs> but as far as the name goes, um, it I think I came up with you did, the yeah. name. It just I don't know why, but outlaw just I think because of my upbringing, it was just immediate. If we're going to do something that's sort of Western theme, because we when we were talking about what sense we wanted to do and what sense were on the market and not on the market, of course, leather and whiskey and tobacco and all those kind of Western-y, adventure themed uh, scents, that's what we were drawn to. And so in thinking of all the, the things that were uh, inspiring us, Outlaw just came. It was just instantaneous almost, and we stuck with that. One of the things that I love about your products are the way you combine some of those scents. You mentioned tobacco and whiskey and there's sagebrush and campfire. They're all mixed in a way that almost tell a story for each product. They each have their own unique theme to them. So so how do you go about combining those, like figuring out what that story is going to be? I was talking to somebody the other day, actually um, one of the Whole Foods buyers, because we work with Whole Foods. And she said that our products have a sense of place. And I felt like that was such a beautiful description of the sense that we've put together. But a sense story is exactly it. But the idea of creating a real life inspired atmosphere, our specific goal, you know, I, I'm a gigantic dork. So I read scientific studies. And uh, it turns out that autobiographically inspired sense, those are sense that, that, that are part of your actual memory. They actually can create a feeling in you against your will. Like if you smell something that was a scent of your childhood that was a scary scent, you're going to feel afraid whether you not want to or not, whether you're conscious of it or not. And if you smell something from your childhood that was a good memory, like a home scent or a Western scent, like Russ's, you know, childhood growing up in Wyoming, those do tell a story, but they also tell your brain a story. And so that's what I love is because you can actually alter your mood without like without drugs by controlling the sense and thinking about what scents are in, like what memories you want to bring back through scent. And then you can incorporate that into your daily life. And that's where, you know, we had that bar of soap, it reminded me of things. And then I was working in a cubicle. So I got to decide, like, what scents do I want to remember that will keep me going through cube life? I don't know if you picked up on it from the everything, but I'm not really well suited for cubicle life. So uh, having a cubicle job and being this, it just wasn't working out. And so having a scent that reminded me of the high desert, uh, which is now lost in the dust, like the, that is the purpose of the company, really. And I'm glad you mentioned lust in the dust because Andrew and I each tried some of your products. And the soap that I tried was lust in the dust because Last year on our comedy Western episode, we each picked three comedy Westerns to 
recommend. And that was one of my three. And that was a really divisive choice. It was one of the, the rare times where Andrew and I vehemently disagreed. Almost came to blows. Yeah, Andrew thought it was a failure on all account. And I, I admired Divine's and Lainey Kazan's performance in that movie. I thought they were very good. So I had to try that soap. Did you feel like the movie was terrible? I'm not a fan. Uh, let's say... Uh... We don't need to relitigate that episode. Yeah, they can go listen to the episode. <laughs> but that that soap had uh, sagebrush, sandalwood, and campfire, and I love that little hint of that campfire. It's really a delicious scent to, to wear. Now, Andrew, you tried a beard oil, I think. I most certainly did. Yes, and I. I What's would, your take on that? Well, my my general take would be that there are. Uh, many beard products today. This is clearly a growth industry. Uh, now, Matt, you'll know that I've had a beard forever, so I'm you know not a new arrival at this party. Uh, so I tried the Fire in the Hole scented Magic Beard and Hair Elixir, which has uh, scents of many of my favorite things: campfire, gunpowder, sagebrush, and whiskey. And it is excellent. I highly recommend this to any of our listeners out there who have facial hair. I'm so glad to hear it. I use a classic magic beard and hair elixir on my hair because I have triangle shaped hair if I don't tame it. And so, yeah, it's like really nice stuff. No, it's, it's, it's terrific. Um, and a little goes a long way too. So um, I, I admit going in a little skeptical just because there are so many beard products out there now. I'm but this so is the glad. Stuff. That makes me so happy. Fire in the Hole is one of the scents that has one of the stories behind it. That it was inspired by uh, our camping trips. Before we got into Outlaw Soaps, we went on a lot of camping trips, especially out to the desert. And they were with our friends, you know, usually a group of 10 or 20 people. And we'd set up a big campfire, of course, in the middle of the camp. And that's where the smoke, you know, we love the smell of smoke. You'd step away from the campfire, you'd still smell like smoke. and We love that. It just, it, it encompasses everything that we loved about those trips. And so, as Danielle was saying a few minutes ago, it just brought back such a strong memory of such good times that it's one of my favorites and it's one of our best sellers. I'm so glad that you love it. That's yeah, you know, I, I give it the, uh, I give it the, how the West was cast seal of approval. So I also tried another product that I wasn't familiar with. It was a solid cologne. And I, I wasn't even aware what that was. I'm only familiar with the liquid colognes. But it's this like beeswax almost or this kind of um, uh, you just sort of rub your fingers on it. And it's beautifully scented. The one that I tried was the Gambler. You mentioned that as a tribute to Doc Holliday. That stuff is just it's great. I, I love leaving the house when we go to a concert or we go to a out for the night or a, a movie and to just put a little bit of that on. It's perfect for the, for a night out in LA. Oh, I'm so right glad on. to hear that. That's right so on. great. So Danielle, what's the reaction been like from your customers? What sort of feedback do you get from the people who use your products? A week and a half ago, somebody sent us a photo of his new tattoo of Outlaw. With your symbol on it? Yeah, with our, uh, it was out the word Outlaw with the Blazing Saddles guy. Oh, great. First of all, when we started the company, I was like, I wanted to create a tattoo worthy company. Like I didn't want to bribe people to get tattoos like Domino's pizza. That seemed not great. I wanted something that was like so iconic, like Jack Daniels or Harley Davidson that people would just feel so connected to that they would get a tattoo. And when he sent us that tattoo picture the other day, I was like, I can just go home now. <laughs> That's got to be very flattering to see that. 
all I ever wanted to do was make something that was so like, I don't know, so fun for people that it just brought joy just by the sake of it existing. And I think that that's what I think we you've really done. See, I think you've, you know? you've set out to do that, and that's what you accomplished. So, where can our listeners find you? Where where can they order products from from you guys? Yeah, um, everywhere. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> Almost everywhere. But you should ask if you don't see us somewhere. Do ask on our website is the main place, liveoutlaw.com. and then Whole Foods, uh, Northern California and Northern Nevada. So we're not quite in Los Angeles yet. And we have a lot of stores across the U.S. Just uh, if you go to our website, liveoutloud.com, and then scroll to the bottom, there's a store locator. And we have probably a couple hundred uh, stores that were carried in. Oh, every single Cracker Barrel in the U.S. So Western fans love Cracker Barrel Country Store. You can get Blazing Saddles in there. They're going to start carrying more of our products soon, too. So. Well, yeah. we'll put a link to the website on our show notes so that people can find you there and they can find you on social media too. I think you guys are on Instagram and Twitter and all of that. So um, so to wrap things up, I've got one last Western related question for you. And this one's purely hypothetical. So here goes. <laughs> the year is 1878 and legendary lawman Wyatt Earp rents a hotel room in Dodge City for the night. And the room happens to come with a rare bathtub. So after heating up several gallons of water on the stove and getting into the tub, he notices a full line of outlaw soaps are available to use. So my question is, which of your soaps does Wyatt Earp choose and why? Okay, well, he didn't drink. So the gambler's out. Unless he wanted to get nostalgic, in which case I guess the gambler's in. The obvious choice is Blazing Saddles because it's leather, gunpowder, sandalwood, and sagebrush. Like he smells like that all the time. But then again, he probably is there in that fancy ass bathtub to get cleaned up. He doesn't want to smell like Wyatt Earp 24-7. He wants to smell like something that a lady would like to cozy up to. And, you know, potentially, I'm not saying, just saying. And uh, so in that case, he probably would go with Calamity Jane, which does have a little whiskey scent in it, but just enough to attract the right kind of gal. And I think the clove, uh, cinnamon and orange would attract the spicy kind of person that he would need to have in his life to keep him interested. Wow. Great answer. Fantastic answer. You told the whole story there. So, um, Danielle and Russ, I just want to thank you for joining us on the show today. It's been a real pleasure talking about your products. Um, Andrew and I have really enjoyed using them. So I, I recommend it to all of our listeners. Uh, thank you so much. Awesome. It really means a lot to hear that. And it's so great to be on the show and find other Western enthusiasts because this is like such a cool genre. <laughs> <laughs> 